Working in any part of the cannabis industry is arduous. No matter your role, you're going to be working hard because every single cannabis company is a startup. This applies especially to cannabis breeders. Quality breeding of stable cannabis cultivars is a huge amount of work. It doesn't take much to simply introduce a female plant to a male plant and make seeds, but a serious breeder has a wealth of experience in cannabis botany, terpenes, the weather, grower needs, customer expectations, and marketing. They also have to put in long hours and many seasons to sift through seeds to find the best pheno possible. And the damn thing is, they are the ones easiest to rip off because cannabis genetics is a wild place with insufficient regulation, nearly no case law, and at its most basic, it is incredibly easy to pop a seed of someone else's life work, cross it with some bag seed you already own, and boom, you have something to market. You know, some folks don't even bother making that cross. Some folks just make seed of someone else's strain, rename it, and sell it right through as if it's their own. And this is the shady stuff that happens before you even get into corporate cannabis, big ag, and everyone's attorneys get involved. Cannabis genetics is like its own high drama TV series that's going to play itself out brutally over the next 15 years until some best practices get established. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates and make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest this week is Reggie Godino. Reggie Godino is Chief Science Officer at Steep Hill Labs. Reggie's a rare one in that he has expertise in science, law, argumentation, and cannabis all at the same time. He is a published genetic researcher with 18 years of intellectual property experience in writing, prosecuting, and managing patents and patent portfolios in fields as diverse as software and telecom to biotechnology and molecular genetics. Reggie received his BS in molecular biology and PhD in molecular genetics from the State University of New York at Buffalo, and he conducted four years of postdoc research at the Washington University in St. Louis, studying transcriptional regulation of ribosomal RNA. Today, we're going to be talking about cannabis patents and other intellectual property. Welcome to the show, Reggie. Thanks, Django. Thanks for having me here again. Uh, you're taking a big chance of having me back, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I like having you on this show, Reggie, is because you're a firebrand, and I know you're going to tell me the truth, regardless of its political implications. So I'm glad that you are willing to come back and, and talk some truth. So, you know, I want to start out very at the top with patents, because the number one question or concern that I get from growers, cannabis enthusiasts, and, and breeders all over the country is that how can people be patenting cannabis when you can't patent nature? And they say it's just impossible. Our cannabis is safe. And yet, you know, there's a lot of smart people who are saying that there are things to be concerned about. So let's start there. What's actually happening that's allowing people to patent plants? So uh, it's, it's a little confusing, right? So, so it's not that you can't patent plants. You can't patent a naturally occurring plant that you just find in nature, okay? However, cannabis has stopped being a naturally occurring plant that you just find in nature since we stopped just growing land races, right? So as soon as we started breeding and specifically selecting for higher THC contents, something happened, right, which is known in, in patent speak as but for the hand of man, right? Mm -hmm. So 
So what ends up happening is, is that you can take a naturally occurring plant and then you do some selective breeding and you push it in a direction that didn't occur naturally. And now it's not a naturally occurring plant anymore. It's actually a plant that has been bred specifically. And once you get to that point, it's no longer a naturally occurring plant. It may be based on that, on nature, right? But you know, what you find in nature and what you create by a directed breeding program are not the same. So that that's the difference. So where's the threshold on that? Because um, you know, uh, was the first time someone took an Afi plant, an Afghani plant, and crossed it with a Thai plant, and we got Afi Thai? Was that first cross of two land races technically patentable because it didn't happen in nature, or is there a threshold to how much you need to change the land races before it is patentable? So uh, there is no well-defined threshold. Typically, you know, if you were to take a bunch of land races that, were, let's say, existed on, you know, you have two different land races, let's say one's in Texas, and so it's technically a U.S. land race, and one's in Mexico a couple hundred miles away, and it's technically a Mexican land race, um, and they can pollinate each other. And if you were to go into that field where, let's say, some Texas pollen landed in a Mexican field, and you were to find one plant that looked different from all of those plants in that field, you would be able to take that plant and patent it because it's not the same as what was growing naturally around it. So the short answer to your question is yes, that very first cross would have been a patentable cross. And the only reason why nobody has patented cannabis going back is because, not because it's been illegal, but because the patent office hid behind the fact that it was an, an illegal plant and an illegal activity to do anything with it. And so therefore they were like, oh, well, if nobody's going to ask, we're just not going to say, right? So, but as soon as anybody called the patent office and, and asked the question, can you patent cannabis? The answer was yes, right? So, so now we get to the question that you're asking, which is, you know, so when does it stop being a naturally occurring you know, plant? It stops being a naturally occurring plant when you can find one difference in a field of everything else being the same. So, and it's weird that it occurs that way, but in the patent law, especially for plant patents, if you were to go through a field and found like a thousand of, of, of a certain strain and there's only one of some other strain, that would technically be patentable because it's 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 novel from all the other ones that occurred by nature, right? So um, it's kind of a gray area or it's kind of a, an ill-defined area. But yes, anything that would not naturally occur by, you know, in nature would technically be patentable. So taking a, a ruderalis or taking a, a an Afghan tie and, and, and mating it with a Southeast Asian because those things would probably not happen because of the geographical distance. Yes, that is a patentable cross. <clears throat> that, that, that threshold sounds awfully low, man, I got to tell you. And, um, and I'm going to ask you to, to kind of flip positions because I know that you are a, um, you know, you're a keep the, the cannabis plant free person and, and you want that IP to stay in the hands of development. But I'm going to ask you for a second to advocate the, the opposing position. Um, so, so the people, you know, at, as a longtime cannabis guy and, you know, advocate, I, I don't like the idea of patenting happening. And yet, I know good people who are moving in that direction. So, will you just explain what the uh, what the argument is from the patent makers side on why they believe that patenting um, these genetics are good for the industry? And then, and then after you make that case, we'll we'll take it apart. 
<laughs> okay, no problem. Okay, um, so l let's start from the perspective of the the investment that's required to create new strains, right? So think about it. You have to take, you know, you get to find the suitable germplasm, and if you and if it's not in your own germplasm, right, you have to go buy it or license it from somebody. It's going to be a cost associated with that. You have to grow it up. Then you have to take and find a good strong male, or okay, let's just say, so you have to find a good strong female and a good strong male, okay, and 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 whether or and there's a cost associated with finding those, right? Then you have to do the cross, and as we know, right, the reason why the cannabis industry is is essentially promulgated on the whole idea of clones is because getting a phenotype and then and then breeding so that phenotype is pure is a very difficult thing and it almost never happens in cannabis right right so so in order to get to that point where you can have let's say something that is patentable in a way that you that really makes sense to patent right so what do i mean by that so a utility patent gives you the strength of being able to patent everything associated with that plant from the seed to extracts to edibles anything associated with that strain if it has if it represents that chemical profile or whatever the claims were for that particular strain is covered in everything that's derived from that plant a plant patent doesn't give you that a plant patent only gives you that thing right it gives you that um uh, what, is it? what am i trying to say it gives you that you know one claim, and it's for the plant as shown as described. You can't get any chemical information into it. You can't get any of these other things. And, and because of that, you can't protect the seed. You can't protect the extracts. You can't protect any of that thing. All you get is the vegetative plant, right? So, so if you are interested in, in preserving the entire product line around a particular new strain, you have to go after utility. So what does that mean? That means that you have to have more than just plant data. You have to have some chemical analyte data. You have to be able to describe why it's novel. So now you can see that there's a whole bunch of investigation that goes into this and a whole bunch of money that goes behind that. If you take an example of Monsanto, which is, you know, obviously we all consider that the, the, the dark lord evil empire, but, <laughs> but, but the reality is, is, is that, you know, they are, have a very sane business plan. They spend a billion dollars a year in plant research. In order to be able to protect that investment in research, you have to have some assurance that you're going to be able to have the right to be the only one to sell that product because you spent all the money to make it, right? So when you look at it from that point of view, it's not necessarily an evil thing, right? And they're not going out there and patenting corn, right? They're patenting corn that they have put a lot of time and effort and resources into making very special, right? Unique, different from everybody else's. The same thing applies in cannabis, right? So here we are. We have a bunch of guys who are trying to go and build a better terp bud, better cannabinoid bud, this, that, the other thing. Well, that requires a lot of time and energy, phenotype hunting, breeding, right? So... Um, if you want to protect the whole entire thing, you have to get the plant to the point where you can have the information and the genetics and the chemistry to be able to patent those things and protect them, right? And, you know, they're, the only way to do that after you've put all that money and time into it is through a patent, right? So 
and 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 I know it sounds like a horrible thing because you know we want the plant to remain free, right? But if I'm given a choice between do I want the plant to remain open source and free, or do I want the people who spent all their time and energy building this industry having a future revenue stream when the likes of the Dow and Monsanto's come to town and can do everything for free because it's all open source, I'd rather have our guys patent it and have a future, right? So, so yes, I, you know, it, depending on how you look at it, it could be a bad thing, but it's also the way businesses play. It's the way agricultural, you know, industries have been built. And for us to think that in the patent industry, we're not going to have to play by those rules is I think foolish on our part, right? So, all right, so, so hold on, let me, let me do a quick summary here. So, so essentially, like, like most agriculture, um, the, the reason the patent people uh, are, who are coming in want to uh, patent their uh, novel versions of strains is because they put a hell of a lot of money doing huge sorts for genetics and, and using all this technology-assisted, not necessarily GMO, but just like laboratory testing to, right. to, to bring these novel strains. And they're like, listen, we've put, you know, six figures into developing this we need to be able to recoup um so that we can pay off our investors and so they want to patent it so that they can preserve some value so but but then you know you kind of shift it a little bit so it's not necessarily for what i'm getting from you the patents that are bad it's actually who's going to hold them because it sounds to me like you're also saying that um patenting by the heritage farmers to keep it open source is actually probably a good thing the question is who is making the patents the the green rushers who are coming to take advantage of these you know 40 years of hybridization am i is am i picking up what you're putting down yeah absolutely yeah i, I think you know we need to we need to touch base on, on on a few other you know pieces that you know make it the more the, the the more directed argument and that more directed argument is is that you know What's out there right now, and, and this is, you know, patent speak, right? So there's a one-year bar, right? So once something is offered for sale, commercial sale, um, and it doesn't even have to actually be sold, right? If there's a contract offering for sale that's made public and that contract is then not signed, but the contract, but the offer was made in a public way, right? That's it. The clock starts ticking. So if that is not filed within one year in the United States, you can't file it. It becomes open source, right? Um, further, if you have any expectations to be able to patent that strain anywhere else in the world, you can't even do that. As soon as you offer for sale, you lose the right to file anywhere else in the world other than the United States. The United States is the only one that has that one-year window, right? So... Um, so when you look at it from that perspective, right, so what should be happening is, is that these people who have all this open source stuff should be trying to develop their next, next greatest thing, and then that's where you start putting your fences in the ground, right? Because anything that's already been sold is available for everyone, right? That means Monsanto, and I said this the last time we talked, right? Yeah. Um, Monsanto, Dow, those guys can go to the dispensaries and just buy one of everything off the dispensary shelves. And they don't have to pay a damn thing because it's open source. It's been sold. They can't protect it. All they have to do is go pay that $15 or $20 for that, that cut off of the dispensary shelf. They can take that back to Monsanto and do all of their stuff with it. 
do all their breeding with everything else that they buy from every other dispensary, right? So how do you avoid that becoming the paradigm? You avoid that becoming the paradigm by those same people who have developed these 40 years of hybridization. Now they do it the way everyone else does it. Does it. Their next set of, of crosses, they do it in a way that they can track it, they can document it, and then they get some chemical data and maybe some, some genetic data under their belt and file before they release. It changes the way we do business in the cannabis industry, right? But it's the way that we help litter the ground with patents that are held by the people inside the industry to keep the green rushers from coming in and taking everything away. So it sounds like the way that, um, you know, people continue to look back like, oh, I, I made these strains that I'm in love with over the last 10 or 20 years that that looking back and trying to preserve those is not the successful path forward. What is the successful path forward is to look into the future and either uh, create new crosses that are based on your old school genetics or just move forward with new genetics but the idea is to what what you know what have you done for me lately you know what what are you doing that's new and novel and that's where breeders should be putting their attention yes however i i want to i want to say in order to make this really a a rock solid kind of industry for us those same people who are going to be working on the new genetics and working off of their own their old strains so this is where kind of somebody has to absorb the cost, right? And this is gonna sound horrible, but a lot of this is only partially successful unless somebody, anybody, everybody, okay, chips in and we can identify the genetics that already exist and try to put a name on them or a sequence to them or something so that we can say, look, this is the database that we started with. So anything that exists in this database, Monsanto or Dow or whatever, they can't just come in and say, oh, look, this is a new strain that we made ourselves because we'll have the information that says, uh-uh, sorry, that existed already, right? So, so it's a two-fold approach, cataloging what exists so that we know where we started and then moving forward in a way that allows us to protect the new stuff and do it in a way that allows us to get there before the likes of the big ag people come. That's how we protect, you know, the industry f from the patent perspective and keep it kind of, you know, within the industry, right? Because if we don't do that, I, I know it sounds gloom and doom, right? And I said the same thing last time, it sounds gloom and doom. But without this, you know, um, it, it really becomes a free-for-all, right? And we don't need a free-for-all. What we want is to be able to protect what we've built and then have a stake in this industry as it grows and moves forward, right? If, if it's a free-for-all, I can guarantee the likes of Monsanto and Dow and, all, and Syngenta and all those people who decide to come in, they do it better, faster, and more accurately than we do. It, it's, 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 that's what they do, right? So, for, so we have to protect it because we know what will happen when they come, right? So time to get the head out of the sand, and, and play this game like any big business would play this game. That sounds so expensive to, to um, you know, uh, determine the code of, of the genome of each strain that everybody has developed that they want to preserve. I mean, how much, how much does it cost to do that kind of analysis per strain nowadays? Well, um, so 
there are different levels of genetic analysis, and and you can some of it is targeted sequencing, some of it is is um, short read, you know, whole genome. Some of it's long en- enough to put in your patent and protect your stuff. Right. Well, so th- that's a great question because I'm going to give you the the here's where the other shoe drops. All right. Right. Um, th- what I'm talking about is what I would call responsible patenting in the cannabis industry. We haven't had to do this in any other agricultural industry. And the, and the reason is, is that because there's no other plant on the planet that is as complex and has as many active compounds as cannabis, right? So normally when you, you take, like say, let's say corn, and you, you, know, you, don't, you don't do GMO, but you do directed breeding to increase the sugar content or to make it, you know, so it has, you know, when you pop it, it has bigger kernels or whatever. Some of those things can be achieved by just, you know, directed um, breeding programs, right? So, but but in the, at the end of the day, you're changing one component, or you're or or you're looking at one component. You know, you're change, looking at a change in the sugar content or a change in the size of the kernel, right? But now we are faced with a with a plant that has 500 active compounds, and we are only looking at a couple: CBD, THC, right? Right. Maybe you know, right? So. So when you have 500 active compounds and you're only looking at two or three compounds, how do you get any granularity in five or six or 700 or 1,000 strains, right? Because at the end of the day, if you don't look at enough compounds, they all overlap, which is exactly what we see right now in the patent record of those strains that have already been you know, filed on and, and issued, right? So they all have kind of, because they're only looking at a couple of things, they kind of all overlap, right? So, you know, so... What has to happen is, and, and actually it's funny that we're having this conversation because on Friday this week I'm actually uh, talking in front of the American Intellectual Property Lawyers Association exactly on the pitfalls to successful patenting in cannabis, right? So, and one of the points that I make is that, you know, when you can take a strain, you take, you know, the same genetics and you grow it in five different places with, or five different conditions and you get five different, you know, answers that that tells you that you need to go deeper than just you know what does the genetics look like because now because of the the paradigm or or the you know the only equation that really that biologists ever use is genotype plus environment equals phenotype right so right so that's that's the basic you know biology math for us because I always think about math. it as nature versus nurture right you've got it you've got it's the, exactly it yeah, yeah. Right, go ahead Right. So it's exactly it. So so now. But the problem is, is that so we already know that even the genetics cannot define a specific chemical analyte output. I have data on it. I have the same genetics grown in four different places, gave me four different responses. Right. So that means that responsible patenting so that you can protect a strain and a, a particular set of genetics and a particular chemical outcome, that means you have to include in that claim the way you grew it. Because if you don't grow it that way, it comes out with a different output, right? So hmm. so now we're looking at a plant that is unique unto itself in terms of how you have to go about patenting it. And this is where we are in the dark ages right now because patent examiners and the patent office don't understand cannabis. They don't see these problems because they've never had to deal with these problems because no other commercial agricultural plant has been the same, right? It's been, let's change this thing, let's change that thing and we'll get a patent on it, right? Now we're not really trying to change things, or we, we, we kind of are trying to change things, but 
we don't know where we started and we don't have a defined endpoint because any given genetics can do any different thing depending on how you grow it, right? So, so the only way to get successful and you know forward-looking patents that allow us to have people going after specific strains that do specific things is to have a level of detail that has never been asked for in plant patents, which is, so, so that's what we're looking at trying to force a change on the patent office and why I'm going to go speak to the AIPLA on Fridays because you know this is this is a huge thing that people in the patent office who are issuing these patents don't understand. They they clearly don't understand. They also don't understand that when we call something a strain, we have not done the stable the stabilization that is almost always part of the process. These are F ones. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. So so. So we're trying to put cannabis into plant patents and utility plant patents, you know, that have been crafted around a certain paradigm and cannabis does not fit at all, right? So, so we have, we, we got a lot of work to do and, and it would be very good if the people on the cannabis side understood and helped educate by going the extra mile, providing the data to the patent office that I'm talking about so that it's already there, right? And it helps create the way things have to be done. Because otherwise, we're gonna end up with the kind of patents we already have have um, you know issued that came out of the Biotech Institute LLC, right? So, and I know that's another topic, so I don't wanna jump into our next topic, but you know, but a direct result uh, you know, of not understanding how to do this correctly is what we see with those patents that were already issued. Right on. So we're going to talk about uh, Biotech Institute after the break. But before we go to the first break, I just want to get a number out of you because I know that there's people who are listening who see themselves as wanting to protect the genetics that they've worked hard on uh, now and going forward. And you're referring to the, uh, the, 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 the kind and amount of data that you want to be able to send to the patent office. What is the price tag to get that research done for one cultivar? So for one cultivar... Um, and you know, and it, again, I said there's different levels of analysis, and that's just and that's give me a ballpark of, figure, man. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anywhere between, I'd say, five hundred to uh, five thousand dollars, right? And 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 let me let me say why it's so wide. Um, depending on the type of strain you're dealing with, you may be able to do something which is called targeted sequencing because you know why it's different and you just have to look there and say, look, all these other strains have this, this strain has this, this is why it's different, okay? Mm -hmm. When you do, however, a regular, let's take, which is what most of the cannabis industry does, let's take that female and this male, and or maybe that female and three or four males and throw them into a room together and see what we get, right? So now you're looking at a situation where, um, in order to get the information, you have to go much deeper. You have to sequence much deeper. The deeper the level of sequencing, the more it costs, okay? And then you add to that whether or not you're doing it for private commercial use or for public domain use, right? So a lot of, at least in the programs that we offer at Steep Hill, we have a commercial price and then a research price. So um, we've been able to secure through our partner that if the data that we generate is donated to the public domain so that we can use it in a publication after you file the patent, right? So, 
So you you know we let you do what you're going to do first, and we use it and accumulate the data, and then we publish publish it later after it's not an issue for you, right? Um, we can offer a much cheaper price because it goes into the research domain, right? Um, and so that's typically half price. That gets you between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars for a whole genome sequencing of a long read, right? Um, Five thousand would be the single the single cultivar price where you keep it for yourself and nobody else has it but you and your patent, right? So so that's the prices that I've been given to work with through the university that I partner with, right? So, But that's for long read. You don't always need long read. If you are using strains that are already decently characterized and now you just need to find in a couple of regions where the differences might lie because you've taken strain A and strain B, you put them together and you want to see what unique parts of A and B they got together, you can do short read sequencing, which is comes in at you know around 800 to 1,000, and then there's targeted sequencing, which just looks at specific genes and comes in around 300 to 500, right? So, so that's why there's that wide range, but it's based on what you need and, and what you're trying to get out of it, so. Right on. That's fantastic analysis. I'm going to be parroting those words from you a lot over the next six months. I can uh, be assure you of that. So we're going to take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Reggie Gaudino, Chief Science Officer and Director of Genetics and Intellectual Property at Steep Hill. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind used during the extraction process. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from true terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make a blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True Terpenes also has strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some alpha-pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top-shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant.
Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Reggie Gaudino, Chief Science Officer and Director of Genetics and Intellectual Property at Steep Hill. So during the first break, we talked about not only why um, people generally in the cannabis industry don't really have a, a good grasp of what's going on patenting, but even more so, this is happening at the patent and trade office as well. And so they are issuing patents that are, dare I say, incomplete uh, and, wouldn't, and, and may not stand up. And so, Reggie, you talked a little bit about that, um, uh, but let's, let's really hit that hard. And, and the first time I heard you talk about this uh, um, was in that article that came out last fall in uh, September of 2017 in GQ magazine titled The Great Pot Monopoly Mystery, uh, written by Amanda Chicago Lewis. And it blew everybody away. And, you know, you and I had talked about patents generally earlier on um, on the podcast, but suddenly this article that kind of went down a rabbit hole of he said she said about um patents that were starting to place take place freaked out everybody but nearly nobody had any actual information so it was all like rumor mill and gossip upon gossip and i hate that stuff but but in that gq article uh you uh, an email that you wrote is mentioned that you wrote to some of the other heavy players in the industry waving your hand and raising a red flag to these new patents that you saw coming out and why th this needed to be addressed immediately to keep an open market so will you take us back to that time and and explain what was in the email and why you felt um so motivated to get the word out yeah so um okay so uh, I have, besides being, you know, a scientist, uh, the reason why I'm director of intellectual property is because for the last 22 years, that's what I have done, right? In the biotech sector, um, written and or managed portfolios. And I, and before I came to, to Steep Hill, I was the senior patent agent at Sequinome, right? So, um, and so, you know, the first thing I did when I came to the industry was like, okay, you know, let, let's see what the patent landscape looks like because I'm about to embark on some research as the director of genetics and I know, want to know what's out there, what I'm up against, right? What, what pitfalls to avoid. So, uh, you know, I did what any decent patent practitioner would do and you, you do, you know, your, your patent arena searches, patentability searches, you know, what just general landscaping to see what the industry looks like. And in that initial... Uh, analysis, I found, you know, at the time it was only three applications that had been submitted by the Biotech Institute LLC, um, you know, and 
my, you know, and, and it was interesting because they were, they were hidden patents, right? So it was, you know, a method patent on breeding and well, I forget the, the title I mean, we can look it up afterwards, but you know, but, but it was essentially it was breeding cultivation, so on and so forth, you know, for, you know, patent, you know, for cannabis, right? When I went through the claims, and this is this is a um, a pro tip, okay? So don't ever pay attention to what the title of a, of a patent says because they're purposely written to be um, vague and and um, misleading, okay? Mm -hmm. So you can't ever tell what's going to be in a patent from looking at the title. You have to look at the claim structure, right? So when I did my my search, I actually was looking for things that had cannabis or marijuana in the claims. Um, and then I filtered it down from there, and, and in that filtering process, I found these three patent applications. And when I looked at the claims, my jaw hit the floor because the first one I looked at was a hybrid cannabis plant having a BT slash BD phenotype. What does that mean, right? So there was a few other things attached to it, but BT, BD just means that it can make both, you know, it, it's the genetic... Uh, you know, nomenclature that we use for specific genotypes slash phenotypes in cannabis. So BT is THC dominant, BD is CBD dominant, BTBD meaning it's a heterozygote, means that it can make both THC and CBD. So that claim structure, the way it was written was basically claiming anything that could make THC and CBD. Well, holy crap, dude, that's like, <laughs> the, that's the entire medicinal cannabis industry, right? So, right, <laughs> right so... So that was a bit on the alarming side, and um, and so I, I you know looked at them. Um, I uh, talked to some other people in the industry, and 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 none of them think knew that they were existent, right? So like literally everybody I talked to had no clue they were there, right? And as I said, they were still applications at the time; they had not been issued. Um, so. While they were still applications, I started to contact people like Steve D'Angelo and some other people. Um, and I think what really happened in the very beginning was is that you know we were so concerned about rescheduling that people weren't really paying attention to this, even though I was making I, I was talking to some people about it. It was in the height of the whole rescheduling thing, right? So like two years ago, and so people just didn't understand or just didn't care. And because of that. Nothing was done, and then the first patent issued, and that was the one where there was the BT sub BD phenotype, that and and the limitations were where it had to have at least three percent THCA or THC and at least three percent CBD, um, and at least one percent terpenes. Right. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're a cannabis grower and you can't hit three percent THC and three percent CBD or one percent terpenes, you shouldn't be a cannabis grower. Right. Like like honestly. Right. So. So the limitations ended up not being limitations, right? right? And so this is where I'm going with this whole thing, right? So because the patents themselves were actually written quite well. They look just like any other good plant utility patent, which means that it was done by a reputable firm with a good patent lawyer, right? If I had written these claims myself or these patents myself, I would have done it exactly the same way. So the patents are well-written and therefore, that means that the claims that were issued are bona fide claims that will be hard to challenge, right? So, um, so that's part number one. It's a it's a well written patent, and if I had done it, I would have done it the same way, right? So, um, 
Now, how did they get over on the patent office? They got over on the patent office because it looks like a patent, like a plant patent. It has limitations that if you don't know the industry look like limitations. So when you say 1% terpenes where beta-mercine is not the dominant terpene, right? Well, anybody who's a cannabis grower knows that you can manipulate the terpene profile by the growing regime, right? So, right. Um, right, so, so now we have limitations in claims that are not limitations and they were not caught by the patent office because the patent office doesn't understand cannabis, right? And they this don't, is they don't what have happens. the experience. They don't have the experience right. to realize it's overbroad. They're like, oh, it, re right. it reads okay, but they don't have a, any sense of context. Right. And this is exactly what happens anytime a new arena is opened up in the patent office. This is not unique to this. When we went to molecular DNA-based di diagnostics, a lot of crappy patents were issued then too. And when we went to, you know, different types of, of engineering, though, you know, when we opened up business method patents, every time a new arena of patents is opened because there's nobody who knows how to examine them, the same exact thing happens. So the fact that this happened in the cannabis industry is not the issue, right? Because it happens in all industries where there's not enough expertise for the patent examiners, right? I remember during the dot-com boom, um, you know, there was a patent for clicking on an image that took you to a advertiser's website, you know, and they're like patenting that. And it was like, well, that's that's the entirety of the internet, you know? Yep, exactly, right? Yeah. So, so, and it's because you have a weakness in the examiner force that doesn't understand the incoming new technology, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened here. So they saw a plant patent that looked like a bona fide plant patent, but it was applied to F1s. Well, in any other agricultural you know, domain, you don't patent an F1. You patent a stabilized true breeding strain because that's how you get your ROI, right? So Monsanto doesn't sell F1s. Monsanto sells stabilized true breeding strains that have gone to the point where you may not even be able to get, you know, fertile seeds from the cross, right? So, so that's how, how deep they go into these things, right? And so because they don't do that in the cannabis industry, right? But the patent office doesn't understand they don't do that. Well, what happened? They issue patents that look right, but can't possibly be right because they're F1s and we don't do any of that other stabilization, right? So, so this is where one of those things where a patent practitioner saw, and, 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 I, and I'm not trying to call the guy out, but I guess I kind of am, right? So when I saw it, I was actually really offended that a patent practitioner would pull the wool over the patent office's eyes like that. But then again, it's because I didn't do it and I wasn't first, right? So he, somebody beat me to the punch, and so I can't say that it's not sour grapes, right? So, right. <laughs> because as I said, it's a well-written patent, and I would have probably done the same thing. And so. you know, even though all of us uh, who who haven't done it are all you know bent out of shape about it, you know, you kind of have to give the person like baller credit. I mean, that's a freaking hustle, you know, to, ha to have your, your, I mean, I don't like it and I'm, you know, I work against it, but you also got to be impressed. Like, dang, yo, that's some game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dude. And, and to, and to have the balls, dude, it was like, and what balls he has to pull that one off and to, you know, it's um, like, it's like putting your arms around the whole cake and saying, this is all mine. Exactly, dude. Exactly. So, so, but you know, so, and I guess, you know, Two things though, right? So as of right now, the patents are really teethless, right? So, so 
in any good regime, right, enforcement has to have teeth, right? So you can't really enforce anything because it's still Schedule One, so it's federally illegal, right? So they have these patents, and until it, be, it gets switched to they can enforce it, the patents really may not mean much, right? But we know it's coming. It's not going to take 20 years, so the patents will still be enforced when that time comes, and then we have an issue, right? So then we, we have to see whether or not it can be challenged because they're invalid. So the question then becomes is who's going to put the money up for that? And that's kind of where everything fell apart because we, we started this part of the, the talk about my letter, right? So I wrote the letter where I did this analysis and I looked at all the claims and I said, well, this is the potential impact. And the potential impact is large, right? Because if you're looking at all THC, CBD producing strains, right? And that's the focus of most medicinal cannabis now, one-to-one ratios, you know, two-to-one, one-to-twos. But it's, you know, always... THC CBD hybrids tend to be the most interesting for the medicinal aspect of cannabis. You know, you now have a situation where a good 50 to 75% of potentially all medicinal cannabis moving forward is claimed, right? But it gets worse because that was just the first one that came out down the pipeline, right? They now have three, or actually, actually they have four now. So since then, Three other members of this portfolio have issued. They now have four issued patents, which means that it's even a harder job to invalidate them. And the patents have become even broader. So now they have one that's a medicinal cannabis patent. It doesn't even claim the phenotype, right? There's no B, T, B, B sub T, B sub D in it. It's just a hybrid cannabis plant making at least 1.5% THCA and 2% or 3%, whatever the numbers were, right? So they even took out the requirement for that genetic you know, limitation. So is it possible under certain growing conditions to get a THA dominant plant to produce CBD? Well, yeah, it's probably possible to do that, right? Would it fall under the B sub T, B sub D genotype? Technically it might, but it doesn't have to if, if it's a trick of, you know, for instance, you know, let's look at it the other way. High CBD plants, right? You get to a point with high CBD plants where it doesn't matter, you know, how hard you try, you will get some THC produced, right? So, you know, I could imagine that there are probably THC dominant plants that do the same thing, right? So, so now think about this. That means that somebody with completely unrelated genetics to the genetics that went into the patent could infringe because they happen to grow their, their own genetics the wrong way. So in my mind, that's not what the patent office meant to do, right? That, mm -hmm. That's just can't possibly be possible, right? That some guy inadvertently not even, you know, using the same starting genetics is, is um, you know, is going to be, you know, on the hook for this, right? It, 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 it can't be right. And, and, the way things are written now, it, that's exactly the way it works. And, it, and so we got to do something about it. it. Absolutely have to do something about it. And I would think that after they got their first patent and it was overbroad and after everybody was done drinking the champagne, they're like, well, what can we do now? And so they come with three more that are increasingly even more broad and they're probably expecting some pushback, but my goodness, they've, they've taken so much real estate of the industry at the beginning Everyone who wants to play defense has to push them that much farther back now. And um, there's probably some right. amount of their patents being reinforcing, right? Like once you have one, if you have four, it makes your first one look better. 
Yeah, absolutely. There, there is that. So, and you get to kind of backdoor into protection. Well, we didn't get it there, but we have this other one that has this, and it's not there. But now they have to invalidate too, right? So, and the more patents in suit, the more expensive it becomes, right? So, you know, and then think about it this way, right? So he's got these things in hand, right? If somebody is going to start to challenge him, what do you do? You go get a, a deep pocket partner like Monsanto. Hey, help me, help me fight these things off, and I'll, you know, let you use the patents, or you, or you can buy them cheap, or you know, whatever. So, you know, there's all sorts of possible scenarios, right? And the only reason I bring up those scenarios is because if at any point the idea was for them to get these things to protect the industry from the likes of those big ag companies, you'd think that. Now that they have four, they would have donated it to, to the public domain already, which they have not done, which tells me that they're in this for their own personal gain, right? So Yeah, that, that's an interesting point too, right? Like, you know, these overly broad patents, if, if, if we had them and they were in the public domain, we'd be like, oh, these are really good patents. They're very broad and they protect, you know, medical marijuana now and into the future. That's great. But since somebody else has got them and looks like they're motivated by profit and could potentially flip it to a, you know, mega agricorp, uh, that, that, that suddenly it looks way less, way less attractive. <laughs> Well, and, 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 and way less like it was done for the correct, you know, philanthropic reasons, right? So yeah. this is definitely, this wasn't done in the best interest of the industry, at least as we've seen before. Yeah, right on. So, right. so let's, go, let's go back to your original email before we go to the second break here. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Your, your, your original email was looking to like, like sound the alarm, raise the flag, bang the drum yes. that this was going on. And from what I know about you, I'm assuming that you're kind of point of your email that you sent out to to these big industry players where, hey, we need to pull together right now and do some fundraising and uh, stand up to this because we're either going to A, need a whole bunch of money to uh, do do the, um, uh, the, the long read on the present cultivars to protect them or B, and more likely, somebody's going to have to stage um, – uh, you know, a lawsuit to to quash these patents when they become enforceable, and and with that assumption, that's what you were trying to get people to consider. Did anybody consider? I mean, is there anybody working on that? It, it seems like a level of participation and cooperation that our industry hasn't quite pulled off yet. So you know me very well, Shango, because that's exactly <laughs> what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, <laughs> so yeah, so I put together the letter, I sent it around, I went to the people like, um, you know, Steve D'Angelo, Steve D'Angelo pulled some people together. I ended up speaking to somebody at one point who was, um, campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton. We tried to put it on in, into that domain to get it to be publicized that way. They weren't interested cause it was too controversial a topic. Uh, I put together a seminar at the New West Summit. I don't know if you, you know, they hold that. Uh -huh. It's, you know, kind of the uh, the financial kind of, you know, uh, da big data kind of meeting for the um, cannabis industry. It's held every year. Um, and so two, two years ago, I, I did exactly that. I did a, a, a seminar on the patents. And then by invitation only, right, the, we had gathered using um, – um, 
New Frontier, uh, the data company, uh, we had get, and we had uh, gathered a number of people for a private seminar that occurred afterwards. It was another two-hour session. And in that session, I had actually brought in an outside law firm. I uh, brought in uh, Morrison Foster because we, we have dealings with them. And, and I had them give a, the perspective of what it would take to challenge the patents, the kind of money, the, the approach, because, you know, uh, uh, challenging, you know, a validity of a patent in the court of law is expensive, right? So there are lesser expensive ways called interportage review or exportage review they're, 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 that are available through the patent office that come in way cheaper. But at the end of the day, it was still going to cost between three hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars, right? And they were asking that a war chest be put together of at least like half a million dollars so that they could go through and do the whole entire thing. And and as soon as they came to the number part. The entire meeting broke down, and it became a discussion of, well, who's going to contribute? And what about the people who don't contribute? Because they're going to get benefit anyway. So they're going to, what do we do about the free riders? And, and literally, it became more about how to, you know, who was going to put in what, and, and how, how the people who put in what they put in were going to benefit more than the people who didn't put anything else who were the free riders. And I, and I, and, and I couldn't believe it. I, I like looked at the room as it devolved into this side conversation, and I was like, Holy shit, dude! What's going on here, right? I, I, I sorry about that. I thought I turned that off. Um, I, I, I literally was floored, right? And how funny um, too, right? Because the position that you're bringing to them is, is you know, somebody's trying to take the whole pie. We want to make the pie available to everybody. Do we want to do this? And they're like, yeah, but if we pay for it, we want the whole pie. <laughs> right, right. So, um, and so, what ended up happening was nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. So, um, I so and it was interesting because, you know, the GQ article talks about Mowgli and and how Mowgli went to, uh, you know, Amanda. Well, I had actually talked to Amanda about this previously, and I was actually the one who actually told told Mowgli about it. And Mowgli and I were kind of at opposite ends of this thing for a while, even publicly. When we finally realized, I'm like, dude, you know, we're saying the same thing. You want them to protect stuff now to keep them away. I'm telling them that they should protect stuff now. The way to do it is to patent it before other people patent. You're against patents, but at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want the industry protected. You know, you seem to think it can be done a certain way. I know patents a little bit better, and I'm telling you we should do it this way. Um, That's and, interesting too. I, I mean, knowing both you and Mowgli Holmes from Philo's Biosciences, I can see how you guys probably approach this differently. You're all like, let's defensively patent it. And he's all right. like, patents suck. And so I right. see, and, and I, I agree with both of those, right? And so I can see how it probably took you guys a little bit of, um, you know, mental jostling to find out you're actually on the same page. Right. And I just for the record, I love Mowgli, dude. Mowgli is an awesome dude. And, and I love talking to him. And, and he and I, you know, ha have, you know, a, a deep respect for each other. Right. So um, and so, you know, it was important for me to for, for me to make him understand what I was trying to say. Right. I'm like, dude, I'm not trying to tell people to patent stuff to, to keep it from being open source. I'm trying to tell them to patent stuff because if they don't, they won't have anything left. Right. So, um, you know, so and at the end of the day, I said, by the way, if we all patent stuff and we say that, you know, and we can let anybody we want to use those patents for free. Right. So once we own a patent, we can give anybody the right to do anything we want with it. Right. But 
by having that patent, you keep the people you don't want from doing it from doing it, right? So so this way at least we have some control, right? And that's all I was trying to do is like make sure that we in the industry maintain control of what we've spent so long building because dude, these guys are gonna come in and with their fancy labs and whatever, they're gonna like 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 literally outcompete us in the matter of years, right? The amount of money that these big companies can dump in with their, you know, thousands of scientists on their payroll. There's no way the, the industry can compete if they get into it, right? The only way to slow them down is to put up all these picket fences and say, and make the, uh, uh, a field full of landmines that they have to negotiate around, right? That's how you slow them down. We're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Reggie Gaudino, Chief Science Officer and Director of Genetics and Intellectual Property at Steep Hill. If you own a cannabis company, you know that finding good business partners, vendors, and allies is an essential part of your role. And building your business in a new industry like cannabis doesn't always make that easy. Canacon is coming to Boston and Detroit this summer, and the halls will be filled with every kind of ally you need for a cannabis company. Technology, horticulture, packaging, marketing, legal human resources, and media, everything you need for your business will be there. And your customers will be there, too. Because Canacon is a premier cannabis business and networking event with nationally recognized speakers and the opportunity to have serious conversations with your business peers and investors. Reserving yourself a booth at Canacon can unlock a lot of doors for you. Not only do you get to network with all the people who pass your booth, but it is not uncommon for Canacon vendors to do a million dollars in business during the event. Canacon Seattle event in February sold out well in advance, so reserve your booths now for Detroit, June 1st and 2nd, and Boston, July 27th and 28th. Attendee tickets are still available for both events. Whether you reserve a booth or attend just for a day, do not miss the opportunity to become a serious player in your market. Visit Canacon.org for tickets, booth reservations, and more information. That's Canacon.org. While I certainly still enjoy smoking joints, I moved over to using vaporizers about three years ago. The high was a little different than burning the flower, and in the end I decided I preferred it for daily use, especially because I have asthma. More importantly though, I could taste my flower so much more. It's hard to express to you how significantly different cannabis with a good terpene profile tastes when vaped instead of burned. I have brought my vape with me to visit growers and they are astonished by the clarity of taste and they say they feel like they're tasting their flower for the very first time. The Air Vape Vaporizer from AirVapeUSA.com is a great device to use on the go or at home. When you pick it up, it feels satisfying like a medical device. It isn't flimsy like many vapes are. I like how the flower is inserted in the top instead of the bottom so it travels a shorter path to my mouth. With the cannabis at the top, I get a hit that feels more substantial, even though I'm just inhaling vapor and not full-bodied smoke. Since I use this vape for flour, hash, and concentrates, I really like that the digital control for the temperature is right there on the front. Three clicks of the button and it fires up to the temperature I specify really quickly and discreetly. You know, vape concentrates are a milder experience than dabbing, but you still get the potency in your hit. Also, the taste is great, as would be expected with a low-temp dab. I love that this vape gives quick little vibrations when it gets to the right temperature. That way, if I'm chatting or distracted while it's heating up, it lets me know when it's ready. If you are ready for a nice pocket-sized vaporizer, consider the AirVape. The new AirVape X has just come out, and it's gorgeous and it includes many updates. 
You can find more about the AirVape Vaporizer at airvapeusa.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Reggie Godino, Chief Science Officer and Director of Genetics and Intellectual Property at Steep Hill. So, wow, we have shaken a lot of trees so far. So we talked about why, um, you know, patenting, uh, people don't understand it, and even the patent office is, and yet there's still some patents that are coming out, and they're not going to likely be held in the open sector. So that's all a drag. But, you know, some people have successfully licensed their strains because they're trying to, you know, advance and make some money off of their life's work, some folks more successful than others. And I know that uh, when I was at Emerald Cup this year, everybody was talking about this particular company, Napro Research, because several of the winning strains were licensed from them. And so, you know, as, as you know, cannabis people are, everybody was was uninformedly talking crap about Napro Research with, without actually knowing what they do. And so let's talk a little bit about the licensing of strains, Reggie. You know, where where are we at now? Have people successfully proven that, um, you know, uh, th- that they own the strains, that they have developed them themselves, and then are successfully getting fees from company for using those genetics? So there, you've got a lot of questions there, some of which I can't answer. But what I can answer is that, yeah, you can actually use the same, you know, we were talking about DNA sequencing earlier and, and what you need to get a patent. Well, it's the same information that you would use for licensing, right? So, um, and this gets back to being able to prove what's out there and what's not out there, right? So if, if you, as let's say a company, want to have, you know, a business where you build new strains and then license them as your, you know, as your business model, what you end up doing is, is you, you get your germplasm you do genetic analysis on your germplasm, right? And you can, and, and it's probably a good idea to do genetic analysis on other, you know, related or non-related germplasm just to, to be able to establish a baseline, right? And by genetic analysis, I don't necessarily mean always sequencing, although sequencing is the epitome of genetic analysis, right? So, um, but, you know, once you have this basal information, the same information we talked about, you know, what the, the cannabis industry needs, you then start your breeding program, right? And so now, because you have the starting material and now you have your, your F1s or, or your even, you know, your later hybrids, right? So um, you can now do an analysis where you say, okay, this is what my offspring look like. This is what the parents look like. Here's what some other random things look like. Look at my differences. Those differences are going to boil down to what are called the single nucleotide polymorphism or, or variants, right? So at any given nucleotide type position, there's a possibility you will have a change there, a polymorphism or a variant, right? So, so when you develop a new strain, even if you said that you take, let's say you take, you know, you know, Afghani and you cross it with, you know, um, you know, a lamb's bread. So you end, you end up with Afghani bread, right? So whatever, something like that. Well, you can see what the SNP calls will be in the, in the Afghani. You'll see what the SNP calls will be in the, you know, Jamaican lamb's bread. You'll see the, where they overlap, where they have the same SNP calls. You'll see where they have the different SNP calls, right? And in that population will then be a unique SNP table that's unique to that new germplasm, which is the offspring of, you know, A plus B, right? 
And every time you build a new strain, you will end up with a new variant call table, right? And that variant call table is the proof behind which you can say, look, this is unique to this. Nothing else has it. Here's what I started with. The mom had this, the dad had this, da 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 right? And so now that is a very defensible position. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of what we need for responsible patenting as well, right? It's the same information that would be the basis of a strong contract for a license, right? So because now, now you have the markers, you can show that this is unique to me. I made this, nobody else has it. And now if somebody, you know, illegally trades that or sells that and you're not part of that license agreement or whatever, you can go in enforcement, enforce it because you have this unique thing. It you only gave it to this person under contract. If it gets out from that person, that means that he's breached that contract. So we are seeing a lot more companies ask exactly for this kind of analysis as the basis of licensing because they see licensing as the quick fix to patenting. And it's actually pretty a pretty good approximation, right? So because you can put these people under contract and you can enforce that contract because, you know, regardless of whether you can enforce cannabis infringement at the patent level, you have a contract under which you have set some terms, right? And if they breach that contract, it doesn't matter what the what the the breach was. They've breached the contract, right? So if the contract says you can't trade that plant because it's mine and they do it anyway, it doesn't matter that it was cannabis because that's not what you're that's not the the that's not what the, the contract was is broken over. The contract was broken over because you did something you weren't supposed to do. And under the terms of the contract, right? So I'm sure somewhere there will be some judge that will try to throw it out because it's based on cannabis. But realistically, this is contract law and it's not patent law, right? So the contract says you can't do this. If you did that, then you've broken the contract. So the fact that you did it with cannabis should be irrelevant. So it's like layered interests. Like, yeah, to, to be able to license it, they need to have already patented it. But the patented part is not no. the, the nature of the no, 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 no. Oh, you don't have to patent it to be able to license. You just need to be able to line up those. No, absolutely clip- not. Oh, that's interesting. Exactly. So once exactly. you, so wow. So this is kind of like a poor man's patent. You can get the analysis done and and show where the I think you called it a clip point. Um, you know, see that those line up, thus proving that it's the genetics that you did your work on, and that is enough for you to start um, charging licensing fees. Right. So now, wow. So here's where here's where the problem comes in because this only works if you have stabilized your genetics and you can prove but if you're just trying to sell an f1 somebody else can create the same it can create an f1 possibly create it with different genetics and end up with the same offspring right so this is why stabilized genetics and true breeding genetics are the paradigm in plant you know agricultural you know business right because the only way to ensure that somebody doesn't get there by mistake is to have it so that it is a true breeding strain, right? Where your SNP table will only be your SNP table and it can be shown that it was there and locked in through X generations of breeding, you know, and some guy randomly put A and B together, but then a and B, he will never be able to get that back because he hasn't, you know, if he tries to self it or cross it, he loses it, right? So so this is why, again, we want as an industry to move towards seed-based growing and genetics, right? So 
F1s are great when you find something, but it should not be the be all and end all. It should be the, oh great, I have a great F1. Now let me do the work to make sure that I can find the true genetics and stabilize it so then it becomes my unique plant that I can then protect. So let me ask you a question, drilling into that a little bit, Reggie. So, you know, I have heard a couple people say that um, uh, commercial cannabis agriculture will always be uh, uh, a clone or cut based because you cannot get the, um, you know, seeds to be uniform enough for commercial monocropping. And for me, I don't think that sounds like the truth. I think that with more work you, uh, and moving beyond F1, working with commercial labs and stuff, people will be able to stabilize seeds enough so that they can use a seed, get the vigorous growth, and yet have each of the plants in the field be similar enough that they can handle them as a commodity. Would you, do, you th- do you agree that, that there's, you know, it just takes a little bit more, maybe not a little, maybe a lot more work to stabilize these seeds, well, and that's where the industry is going to be? Well, I, I would I would say yes. So so when if you had asked me without all the other stuff, if I thought that was true, I'd say that's complete and total bullshit, right? So complete and total bullshit. And whoever says that is clearly not a geneticist or a true, you know, plant breeder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I hate to be the dick to say that, but that's I mean I hear stuff like that and it drives me batty, right? So so. You know, any plant can be stabilized. Does it take a long time? Sometimes, yes, right? And will it take longer if you don't have genetic tools? Absolutely, right? But this is why you have cannabis companies like myself and Phyllis and others that are doing this work so that we can build breeding markers. And it's not, and, and it's not just the breeding markers for THC and CBD because that's, that's baby shit, really. That's the low-hanging fruit. That, and, and People need to also realize that you can only breed so much THC and CBD into a, you know, output in a plant before the plant gets sick and doesn't grow well. And in which case, then you have an all over overall yield, right? So do you want a plant that puts out 40% but grows poorly or a plant that puts out 28% and grows like gangbusters so your overall one acre yield is much higher, right? So these are the kind of things that people who are not plant biologists and plant, you know, in the plant agricultural, you know, technology don't understand these things, right? So so what is it that we're doing? We're trying to actually find all the other genes that are not THC and CBD because in order to make a plant that has more THC and CBD, you gotta build it from the ground up. You have to have it so it has more biomass, so that it has you know longer flowering time and all these other things, right? So to blindly look at just, you know, a gene family and think you're going to make a better plant that way is, is, is not doing it the right way, right? So now, when you look at it from that perspective, you need the breeding tools so that you can grow an overall healthier, better yielding plant that has an increase in everything, right? And that is what the, the object of, you know, um, building stabilized genetics and true genetics are. And it's done in every plant because it can be done in every plant. It's just a matter of organization and and dedication right and now you and now you can add to that marker assisted breeding because we have moved into the realm of where almost every commercial crop has been sequenced we have markers that we can follow and now we can do rapid generation cycling and we can do other things that help us build better plants faster right so all of these things are done already and can be applied to cannabis 
Right on. So uh, you, you got my attention when you said, you know, the dedication and, and, and efficiency or drive, whatever you said about, you know, getting this done. And I think that this is one of the ways, places that I get a little torn about licensing of strains because, you know, the whole show we've been talking about how we want, you know, uh, the, 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 the overbroad cannabis patent to be in the open domain so that everyone can use it and, and it doesn't because, become individualized IP. But at the same time, Time, you know, you've got companies, and, and, and I actually don't know exactly what NAPRO Research is doing. There's not much you can read online, even if you read the patents. And I've got an invitation out to Mark Lewis. Hopefully he'll come out on the show. But, but you know, I have to both, like, on one side, I, I like the idea of the genomics being free. But at the same time, I'm, I'm really impressed from what I, about what I think NAPRO is doing, where they are they're using technology dedication, efficiency, and skill to do a natural non-GMO hybridization process really fast. So they are, um, you know, they, they're developing these, these strains with incredible terpenes that then go and win awards and then charge people to use their strains. And I'm so torn, right? Because I, I want all this stuff to stay in the, in the public domain, but at the same time, as a cannabis, well... I guess I can't call myself a cannabis breeder. As someone who's interested in cannabis breeding, I can't help but be impressed that they're pulling this off. I mean, anybody who does, you know, dedication to a particular area and excels at it, that's pretty impressive. And yet, at the same time, I want it in the public sphere. It's 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 hard to think about because you know I, I want these companies to be able to recoup some of the you know not some but I want them to make profit you know on, on all their efforts and money they put into it. But at the same time, I want it to be available to everybody. That's a that's a that's a that's a sharp edge right there. It is, and and that gets us back to our the first set of questions, which was you know Monsanto spends a billion dollars a year on research, right? Are they supposed to just give that up to everybody for free? How do they recoup that? Same thing with, with, with NAPRO, right? So if, if they're using tools like I'm building here, marker-assisted breeding, rapid cycle generation, and, you know, and we could have gone down that path, but I felt it was a bad route for us, right? Who's going to use my genetic analysis services if they think that I'm competing with them to build my own strains, right? So, so I, we chose this steep hill to stay out of that arena, Okay, and just to offer the services so that we can help other people do it, right? So, uh, NAPRO is doing it in house. So I, 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 and again, I did not know about it until the recent spate of, of their stuff that they won. And, and I looked them up as well after that. And, you know, I mean, more power to them. They are doing, they are doing what Monsanto, what Dow, what those companies do that they build a better mousetrap and then they license it out for everybody to use, right? That's that's how business works. Yeah, it really, it's, un yeah, it, it's, it, it's unfortunate, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's because because the, the problem is, is that we in the industry have not been prepared for business to work that way, right? We were caught unawares. And now, unfortunately, the people who do it better than us are gonna come in and try to take it from us. Totally. That, that's the, that's the sore point. So. And, and and you know, coming up and earning my stripes through you know uh, patient advocacy and working with you know medical farmers and old heritage farmers, um, that's where my heart is, right? But at the same time, you know, I'm a you know a former tech 
business strategist. So I see the brilliance in the licensing as well. And it's really torn because I want these heritage farmers whose lunch is being eaten by all the new Green Rush folks. I would like them to get paid for for the work that they've done on on cannabis over all these years you know, during prohibition and in the, you know, with the threat of, you know, going to jail, these people deserve something for all, you know, for, for keeping the flame alive, right. And doing this important research. But unfortunately, um, you know, I can't want patents for them, but, but not want patents for other people. It's a, it's a way bigger picture than that. And that's, that gets confusing. And so, so when people jump squarely on one side, it usually makes me a little suspicious, you know, just like you're in Mowgli's um, discussion, right? You know, like, like, like the fact that you guys realize that you were approaching the question from two radically different sides and yet you agreed. I think that there's a lot more of that in the industry than individual people realize because there's few people who have done the homework to understand why some of the things they don't want are necessary. But it's still, patenting's still hard to choke down. Yeah, no, no doubt about it, right? Because it's, it's the nature of our industry, right? We, we, we've always been this very communal, share, open source kind of thing, right? Puff, 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 and pass, right? You know, but you got to do the pass. Pat- you got to right. do the pass at the end. And patents doesn't, it's right. like puff, puff, keep. <laughs> right. Well, Yes, except if we choose to, right? So we can do the puff puff patent and then say, okay, I now let, so. Puff puff patent pass, is that really what we're going to say? Puff puff patent pass? (laughs) Puff puff patent pass to those people we want to to use, right? So, so, but, and and this gets into all sorts of other stuff. I don't want to make this an intellectual property, you know, discussion, right? But, so, you can choose to assign the rights to use that patent to anybody you want once you have a patent, right? Don't have to charge them for it. You can let them use it for free, right? We can do that, right? The problem with that is, is that you, by doing that, by letting some people have it for cheaper for free, you set the value of the patent low, so that when you turn around and Monsanto comes knocking on your door, you can't charge them a million dollars for something you gave somebody else for free. Mm. That's not that, that doesn't work in the pet in the patent domain that way, right? So, <laughs> um, so you know, um, so you know, it, it, it is you know. But if you choose to just give it away for free and not charge anybody for it, then you can give it away for free and not give it away to the people that you choose not to give it to. It's your patent. You can do anything you want with it. So changing uh, gears one more time before, uh, before we wrap up, you know, a lot of people are saying, like, don't worry about all the cannabis patents because um, once they finally become enforceable with descheduling, um, they will be challenged in court and there's just no way that they'll stand up in court. What do you think? Um, well, so um, – in my analysis, I felt that there were some weaknesses in the patent. Um, I felt that one of the things was is that there wasn't enough uh, attention paid to the fact that these things were all F1 and they're, therefore they're, they're, they're not stable. And the seeds that were deposited, and ironically they're deposited outside of the United States, which means that you can't bring them back in the United States to test them at all because it's illegal. Um, but that's another point. Um, so uh, you, the issue becomes then, um, you know, in, in in the potential, um, I lost my train of thought here. So, um, 
God, where were they going with this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was asking you how likely it was that it would stand up in court. Oh. And you said, you said, well, there's a bunch of holes and. Right, right. So, so some of the holes are, you know, that um, you have, well, this, the kind of stuff that I'm going to be talking about this, this, this Friday with AIPLA is, you know, you have a, the fact that a particular set of genetics grown different ways will give you multiple outcomes, right? So in a situation, in, in a situation like that, okay, you have to ask the question, well then, um, you know, what, what defines the output, right? Because none of, you know, they're claiming, um, you know, THC and CBD hybrid. Well, okay. So what's the limitation behind that? You know, wh wh where do you draw the line be behind something that was part of the genetics and something that was not? So um, in this patent, they took some germplasm, a lot of different germplasm. They have a whole breeding table of all the things that they did that would, and they did it that way so they could peel off a lot of patents. But um, in every situation, right, they tried to claim an F1, right? And the issue with the F1 then is heterozygosity. The patent examiner actually made a comment about it in the prosecution of one of the patents, and then there was an examiner interview and it went away. And I'd say that that's probably one of the, the, the places where I would hammer the hardest is like, you know, so why is something that we have a seed deposit for, and I can take those seeds and I can show you that when I germinate the seeds that are on deposit, you'll get 40. 20, 40, you know, however many phenotypes. So which one of those phenotypes is the correct phenotype for this claim, right? That's how I would go about it. So I do think that there are weaknesses. I do think there's potential for challenge. Um, I think it's going to be a, a tough a tough road to hoe only because there's not a lot of prior art. So what has to happen is somebody's going to have to go through and look at all of the hemp fests and the emerald cups and the high times cups and all the data that's ever been published like on Facebook and those places because there is no scientific data available. There are no patents, there are no publications where we can say, look, strain X has this chemical profile, right? So the only way to challenge these things is to show that these things existed in the public domain, right? So find some of these old 2012, 2013 high times cups, all these things that have been published, and then take that with that in hand, say, okay, so now the genetics is not stable, or, or the genetics are not stable, okay? They, they, they say they have seed deposit X, but if we take seed deposit X and we germinate them, look at all the different phenotypes. So that combination of things is probably the best way to go after these to invalidate the, the, these patents. The problem with that is, is that, you know, you're talking a fair amount of money to get the background data. You gotta germinate the seeds, you gotta do chemical analysis. There's a whole bunch of stuff that will need to be led up to because there's no other way to do it. So this is going to be a long, drawn-out, expensive patent battle unless it's done by an inter partes review or an ex partes review so that you can avoid a, a court battle. So, Whew. Right on. Sounds like a lot of attorneys getting uh, rich off this and a great area for up-and-comers to go into uh, you know, law and biotech side. This, this sounds like it's going to be a very exciting playground for a while. You know, before I let you go, Reggie, um, you were telling me earlier about um, the, the, the new expansion to your lab there at Steep Hill. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that before, uh, before I let you go? Because you sounded pretty damn excited about it. Yeah, no, I, I am excited. So, so we have, uh, Steep Hill is, is, I mean, 
from the last time we talked, it's not even the same company anymore, dude. Um, so we have Steeple Global now, which is a a, um, a a parent kind of division that handles our expansion. We, we were, you know, we have Steeple Israel. We're going into Europe. Uh, we are in, we are in Canada. Um, we're, you know, we have negotiations going on in South America. So so Steep Hill has become an international company. So we have Steep Hill Global. We have Steep Hill Ventures, which is actually an incubator arm now, where we actually take startup cannabis, you know, tech companies, bring them in house, help them with finances, help you know with science to validate. Um, we've actually split up Steep Hill Labs into a production and R and D. Uh, company now, right? So now we actually have a strictly devoted production side that their job is to do nothing but to make sure the trains run on time, tests get out in a timely fashion, reports are accurate, that kind of stuff. And and in the generation of all this stuff, I was able to kind of carve out Steep Hill R&D, my little area where we continue to do the genetic research. We still do the kind of collaborative research with universities, um, we, we do some of the validation work and, and you know, um, incubator work that goes into the companies that we bring in from Steep Hill Ventures. So, um, but the, the really amazing thing is, is that all the stuff that you and I have talked about over the years was, has been done with basically me, Anthony, and Christian. And at one point we had Bob as well, Bob Gibbons, who's um, was my uh, laboratory director for genetics. Uh, but who took a, a leave of absence about two years ago because he, of some family issues, and and unfortunately the family issues just keep getting worse. So, um, so you know, so all of the work that Steep Hill is known for genetically has been done on the back of like three people, really, right? So, uh, but the cool thing is that now Steep Hill R and D has a its own staff. So I have my main researchers. I've I've got a a full time bioinformatics personnel guy now. Keith Allen, who came to me from Syngenta. So we've actually been doing some corporate rating ourselves and bringing in some really powerful people to help really blow up our R&D and our bioinformatics and genetics capability. Uh, the last thing is, is that we actually have our own genomic services d division that started up, and it's being headed by uh, Daniela Vergara, who is actually the head postdoc and the, the postdoc in charge of the cannabis research at University of Colorado uh, Boulder in Nolan Kane's lab, right? So we've cemented that 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 partnership even further by hiring her as, as our director of genomic services. So Steep Hill has doubled down on the genetic side and, and it's just, it's really exciting. The stuff that's coming out of, on a daily basis from my R&D team is it, I mean, literally, dude. Uh, if I could, it, it, if I could, you know, use a uh, an inappropriate reference, it's it's like being a porn addict and and and, and having unlimited access. <laughs> so, so essentially, the invention of the internet. You know, I I was at a uh, a lunch the other day, and somebody said, "Oh yeah, Steep Hill, they've put together you know a world class terpene lab, like like one of the best in the world." Um, uh, uh, you must be feeling pretty proud to have been able to finally put together all the pieces that you've been trying to put together for a few years now. Absolutely, and and. Let me tell you. So once we plugged in, the data just started rolling. Right now, I cannot tell you. So, um, so before you, you know, we, I was proud to say, oh yeah, we have another couple genes in development for our, you know, for our uh, library of, of genetic services, and, and and now it's like, I'm like, we have. We have to develop how many at the same time? I have like a list of 40 genes that we're developing all at the same time now because that's how fast you're coming out of the bioinformatics pipeline right now. So. Oh my God. Well, right on. Well, congratulations on all yeah, of that. Yeah. So I'm. And, and, 
I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm so totally. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll uh, hit on uh, a couple other topics that that uh, that I'll have you back on the show for. But more than anything, dude, thank you so much for your time. I know it's really valuable, and and nobody really tells this story like you do. You've got the science and the law background, but also the swagger to tell it how it is. So I appreciate you coming on the show and breaking it down. Thanks, dude. And you're the only person who appreciates the fact that I'm an asshole. So thank you. <laughs> you, got, you got to go with your strengths, man. <laughs> Absolutely. You can connect with cool. Reggie at their website at steephill.com. And that's S-T-E-E-P hill.com um if you've got questions and or inquiries for either reggie or the steep hill team you can reach them at info at steephill.com. um also um there's a great keynote address that reggie offered at the j canna cannabis science conference in uh, portland two years ago on integrating genomics and chemical analytics in cannabis research and so if you if you like how reggie tells a story do not miss that on my youtube channel which is uh, youtube.com for Slash Shango Los. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. Mm-hmm.